usually the primary reason that I see no return is because it was based off of hype or the wrong reasons without keeping in mind what that end result really needed to look like. Kira McKenzie-Jackson is an angel investor, strategic advisor, and head of partnerships at RX3 Growth Partners. After the boutique PR firm where she began her career was sold, Kira received an equity check that set her path forward for her next chapter. Today, Kira works closely with celebrities and professional athletes to build organic marketing strategies for brands at RX3 Growth Partners. Coming up, learn about the process of selling an agency business. You'll hear about what to expect with a celebrity partnership, how you can identify influencers for your brand or marketing campaign. And finally, Kira shares ideas for unique partnership opportunities that you can try in your business. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Kira, I am so excited to sit down with you this afternoon and hear all about your career journey and story. Take me back. What was your journey like starting out, you know, in the corporate world? Because now you are leading partnerships at a venture fund. How did you get there? I'll take you back, I suppose, to college because when I was in university, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So I was pre-law. None of this was premeditated in a sense. So I went to school pre-law, graduated in three years. I really wanted to start working. I've been passionate my whole life about just getting into the workforce and doing something productive with my life is what it felt like. So my initial career, I was I was the second employee at a PR firm that was based in San Diego. And we were a boutique firm. We worked with health and wellness companies. Started out with one client, which is crazy. Suja Juice, and then ultimately scaled that to about 45 or so employees. So got to watch kind of the early, the early stage company growth from the inside and really help spur that growth. Ultimately, we sold that to Power Digital, which is a marketing firm based also in San Diego. At the time, they had about 150 employees really focused on full funnel marketing, but their expertise was definitely in paid at the time. So that acquisition of a PR firm, single channel acquisitions, allow them to kind of expand into different sorts of arenas and provide different services. So that was our sort of role in that acquisition. While I was there, I really expanded my repertoire to include, yes, more of the top of funnel stuff that layers into middle and bottom of funnel, a lot more flexibility, leaning into affiliate marketing, influencer strategies, partnerships, huge, uh, with celebrity talent, influencers, but then also brand-to-brand stuff. And then kind of beyond that, I mean, getting some sort of an awareness of how those top-of-funnel channels feed your kind of content needing performance and retention channels. And then from there, ultimately, was a part of a sale process. Once we had scaled that company to about 500 or so, a lot of that was organic growth. Some of it was acquired growth. We sold to a private equity firm. 
And that firm was Court Square. That was a very formal process, something I'd been unfamiliar with prior, but we had a banker and entertained several different options in terms of potential acquirers or financial sponsors, and ultimately wound up with Court, who was wonderful. And then shortly shortly after that sale, I pivoted my career into private equity as well to sort of take my learnings from top of funnel marketing, building consumer brands for nearly a decade, um, be able to do that in a more, I would think a little more of an impactful way where you can really, really drive, drive that impact. When you were working in the agency world and going through these acquisitions, were you heavily involved in the full acquisition process, seeing everything from start to finish? Yes, I was very, very lucky. And when I say lucky, it's because it's it's usually a select group of people that are sort of responsible for that process. When we were going through our process at Power, there are about 10 to 15 that kind of like fluctuated on each call. And I was responsible for speaking to all of our top of funnel strategy since that's what I oversaw at the firm. So I was very, very lucky in the sense that I got to be involved with most aspects of that process. What were some of the learning lessons going through the acquisition process as an agency business? We actually have lots of agency owners in our entrepreneurial league community. And I think learning about this process and what it's like to actually put your business for sale and the things you need to prepare and be thinking about and learning from, you know, women like you who've been through that process and have probably seen the the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and all of the all of the learning lessons. Uh, tell me everything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say the first thing is understand what your value proposition is beyond just human capital. I think that was the biggest learning between going through the sale of Covet to Power and then Power to Court Square is the way that you're valued is based off of value you bring outside of just strictly human capital. If you can do that, then you're being valued on a different scale and it's a lot easier for you to get A, a higher valuation, but also to be able to kind of like hit those numbers post-sale because it's less dependent on human capital and your client base. That being said, I also think it's important to understand what a potential buyer would be acquiring. Are they acquiring that client base? Are they acquiring the talent base? Or is there some sort of like proprietary software that you're building out? Even if you're not valued as, as a SaaS business, you know, being valued as a pass or a platform as a service is equally helpful in terms of just like refining those EBITDA multiples and giving you a little bit more, you know, bang for your buck, but also pulling a lot of the pressure off of the actual talent that you have on your roster. What was the process that you went through and did you work with a banker in the process or were you and the founder working on the the deals together? Yeah. So for Covet PR, that was not a banked process. The founder actually ran the majority of that process on her own, tapped me in at the last second. She is probably one of the most impressive agency founders or just female founders in general that I've seen. That process was more about opportunities that we could bring to our client base in the form of kind of expanded offerings and cross-selling in a way, but also opportunities that we could bring to our talent base. So the people who worked at Covet got exposure to a lot of other components of sort of like the marketing funnel. And they got to learn a lot of things that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to at a single channel agency, which I think is a nice opportunity to be able to bring your people. That being said, I mean, there are difficulties and hiccups 
with any sort of sale process. I think that there are pros and cons to doing something a little bit opportunistic like that and something that's, you know, a formal process that you do work with the banker on, which is what Power Digital did in selling to Court Square. I think it really just comes down to the partnership that you build with the person who is selling your business or the person that is buying your business, making sure that that's extremely personal and that you understand the ins and outs of what they're looking to gain out of that acquisition. All right. Take me to your role now. You have all of this experience building partnerships, building brands, and now you've gone over to to the other side. Tell me about this role. And I have so many questions for you. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really fun role. So high, high level, basically the way that I like to describe it is I run value add for RX3 Growth Partners, which is a consumer-centric growth equity firm. So we invest in consumer brands that are sort of post that A at an inflection point of growth, typically doing, you know, 10 million plus in terms of trailing revenue. So they're sizable businesses. They're ready to really scale. And our, our thesis is investing in consumer brands that we can bring kind of unfair advantages through via, you know, a network of influential, I'll say LPs or limited partners, our investors in the fund. We're co-founded by Aaron Rodgers now of the New York Jets. That's the first time that I've said that. Exciting. (laughs) And I would say about 30% or so of our investor base in a traditional sense is comprised of athletes, celebrities, and influencers. So a lot of what I do is pairing those consumer brands with the right talent at the right time, making sure that it's a full funnel approach so that we're not, you know, attaching attaching a celebrity and not providing any other support in that middle and bottom of the funnel. We're thinking about the consumer journey or storytelling. And then the other aspect is making sure that, you know, marketing spend is optimized, tech stack is tight. And then on top of that, taking advantage of brand to brand sort of partnerships when and if they're available. I am so bullish on brand partnerships just with regard to capitalizing on existing brand equity, targeting new demographics, testing and iterating. So that's kind of like the high level of how we work with portfolio companies, I would say, once we've invested. Can you walk me through an example of a portfolio company that you've invested in and partnerships that you've set up and and the results that they've generated so our listeners can really get a feel for what's actually possible when you really focus on putting these partnerships together? Yeah. I mean, they honestly run the gamut. I'll start with our our annual charity flag football tournament, which I think is an interesting place where our, our brands activate. So every year we have a charity football tournament that is owned and operated by RX3. We have this year, this past year, we had 10 NFL quarterbacks come. Each quarterback spearheads a different team. Each team was $100,000 donated to charities of our our sponsor's choice and charities of the quarterback's choices. And it's a fun, you know, day in the sun, but it's also an opportunity for our companies to get really valuable visibility with that sort of demographic. It's not just, you know, athletes playing, there's celebrities playing too. We had Josh Demel play, Dustin Lynch, really, again, runs the gamut. This year, I was it was very interesting. We actually had one of our portfolio companies is Core Power Yoga. And in advance of the athletes going on the field, we did a Core Power Yoga class that kind of showcased their new class format, which is their Sculpt X format, Strength X, which is phenomenal in and of itself. But it was an opportunity for them to showcase the new format to these athletes ultimate goal, bringing obviously them in studio, but it was also such a valuable opportunity for them to get content of these athletes doing these different moves so that they could then splice and dice it across different channels. So that was really impactful just when you're thinking of 
content generation around a new innovation. Another sort of example is that you're looking at Hydro, you know, helping to bring Kevin Hart into a larger scale deal with that company to expand brand awareness. Um, we're working on bringing a couple of other celebrities into that into that brand as well. Khloe Kardashian most recently, really excited to build that partnership. But you have to couple, you know, that celebrity engagement with a really robust influencer program that then ladders back to an affiliate program and then mm -hmm. feeds into, you know, your email strategies and your social media strategies, both paid and organic, and even search, CTV, et cetera. So getting really creative about the people that make sense for the demographics that the brand wants to target. And then I kind of think about the output in three different buckets. I'll look at it like we might be looking for content. We might be looking for engagement and sales, or we might be looking for general awareness. And I think about every partnership that we build out as hitting, you know, one or two of those buckets. It's very, very rare that a partnership will fill all three. But when you think about your top priority around a specific initiative being one of those three categories, it really helps to sort of refine what type of partnership you want to build and with whom. When you typically partner with celebrities as investors and influencers, are they investing their own money into the brand and then also, you know, required to post about it as part of their investment? Or are they just investing content and being a spokesperson and getting equity for that? I love that you ask that because one of the things that I'm very, very proud that we do not do is require any sort of deliverables from the talent that's associated with the firm. So we're unique in the sense that the majority of the celebrities and athletes that are associated with Arts3 are investors in the fund. So by proxy, you know, they're LPs, they're investors in all of the deals that we do out of that fund. That's just like general value add alignment from the get-go. It allows us to create these very authentic and organic partnerships that are truly based off of their unique sort of perspective, but also the alignment in terms of values, which I think is, is relatively unparalleled. That being said, because we also work with investors and in, in the sense of building out these larger scale equity alignments, there is occasionally sort of those opportunities for additional alignment mechanisms through warrants, equity waterfalls, et cetera. So those sorts of things. And then of course, you know, when we do have a celebrity that really wants to lean in and does so in a way that adds a lot of value for the brand, then there are opportunities for larger scale partnerships that are, you know, maybe a little bit of cash oriented in addition to equity. Those are just negotiated through their management or agencies. It's something that we kind of don't touch. Yeah, no, it's super interesting and definitely so aligned. I know we had initially connected through Alyssa, um, who's co-founder of Pearl Influential Capital. And we had a have a similar thesis in the sense that with influencers having the opportunity to invest in these brands, they're not required to post about the yeah. brands. But when you're invested in a, a business, you're probably going to want to post about it and share authentically how you how you use it. So I absolutely love it. And I think it's it's really important because I think that with, you know, celebrities, it can feel like everything is this, you know, endorsement. They're getting paid to just post about every single thing when in reality, they're investing their money because they 
believe in the product and they authentically want to talk about it. And I think, you know, so much more, especially on social media and Instagram, like you want to see that genuine, authentic connection. And when you share with your audience, like, no, I've put my money in this. Like, I'm not getting paid for this. I'm paying to invest in this. I think it means so much more. Totally. And I love that you bring that up because a lot of what you do with Pearl Influential, which I adore, is deal by deal structures. So in those instances, it's incredible because the celebrity knows exactly what they're investing in. The influencer knows exactly what they are investing in. Candidly, one of our biggest struggles is when a celebrity or an athlete or an influencer invests in the firm and we do 15 to 20 deals out of that fund. And then it's sort of like, hey, we have to keep them apprised of those types of deals that we do on a rolling cadence, but there can't be an understanding that they are going to support all 15 to 20 companies. All 15 to 20 companies might not be the perfect fit for them. So it's important for us to be mindful of sort of like Mm -hmm. not diluting their own brand equity and making it easy for them to lean into the brands that they're obsessed with, but then also not requiring them to lean into the brands that they aren't. And the benefit is, I think, as we continue to grow as a firm and as a fund, we're expanding that sort of sphere of influence where it's a lot easier to be able to scale those types of partnerships without, you know, overtapping humans, which I think is where this industry sort of gets it wrong. Absolutely. Well, I want to hear more about your expertise in influencer marketing and partnerships from, especially when you were working in the PR world and and social media world prior to this role. We have lots of founders that are, you know, new in business. They've started their business in the past one to three years, and they might not have these huge marketing budgets because they're not funded. They're bootstrapping their business and they're really trying to figure out how do I form the right partnerships with other like-minded brands that have similar audiences to help move both of the businesses forward. Any recommendations that you can share for the best way for startup founders to structure these partnership deals and maybe examples of some successful partnerships that you were able to structure early on? I think mutual alignment is just the name of the game. I'll give an example to kind of illustrate the point. Recently, we brokered a deal between Core Power, which I mentioned is one of our portfolio companies on the RX3 front, and Bala, which is actually one of my personal portfolio companies. The benefits being, you know, Bala is looking for sort of this more national awareness. They're more of a coastal brand in the sense that they're super sexy and cool. The price point is slightly higher, but they do have that coastal community tapped. And then Core Power is a very like national mass market brand, which is wonderful, but they were struggling to reach this sort of like younger consumer demographic and pull that attention from, you know, competitors that are a little bit more hardcore, especially alongside the launch of StrengthX. So when we partnered them, the name of the game was really capitalizing off of the existing brand equity that each company had within their respective demographics that the other needed access to. And that was the reason why we brokered the deal in the first place is the mutual, the aspect that it's mutually beneficial. As we're brokering that deal, there are layers to that partnership. So the first layer is, you know, co-branded product. Because it's the easiest way for Bala to have visibility in Core Power Studios when they have a Bala product. But to have the Core Power Orange be the color of that Bala product allows opportunities for cross-promotion of content, especially. But also, you know, sharing sort of influential influential communities, if you will, for things like activations and content events and so on. So as we're layering that sort of like 
output for each side, it's important to still maintain the visibility of what each company is looking to gain from that partnership. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can create a partnership that feels a little one-sided, et cetera. From my experience, the best co-branded partnerships are the ones that are done entirely in kind because mm-hmm. there's so much you know, symbiotic, there's a symbiotic relationship. But I have also seen and done partnerships where, you know, you pay for the cost of product or you might actually pay for access to their community in some instances where a smaller brand is partnering with a larger brand and so on. I actually think podcast partnerships are a great example of that. A lot of times brands will pay for sponsorship opportunities or interview opportunities with podcasts that really align with their target kind of core consumer base. And I think that can also be incredibly impactful, specifically because it's a medium where you can storytell. Absolutely. I think podcasting is, I mean, we do it. It's one of the best places to really just get an in-depth understanding of a brand and really be able to connect a brand with a consumer and uh, now with lots of video from podcasts, you can see it too and not just hear it. So definitely yeah, agree. Exactly. And 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 you hear it in, in the stats with the podcast recordings now. People are just more, you know, they understand the product. They want to buy it after they they listen to the podcast. So absolutely. Yeah. The one thing I'll say with podcasts is I think that it's very easy to get wrapped up in hype around podcasts that just carry a lot of weight. And I think the brands that do it really well are the ones that find that niche community. It could be a big community, it could be small, but I think being really picky, just, I guess this applies to any kind of partnership, being really picky with regard to the people, the talent, the podcast, the medium that you're targeting in order to get that output. That's how you can ensure that you see a result versus I think partnerships get a bad rep in the sense that people will say, oh, you know, we we did this partnership, but we didn't see anything come of it. Usually the primary reason that I see no return is because it was based off of hype or the wrong reasons without keeping in mind what that end result really needed to look like. Absolutely. And I always share, you know, especially with podcasts, it's not just about hearing or seeing the content on the podcast, but it's about what happens after, like continuing that content onto social, into email. Like you really need to see that whole integrated marketing strategy because people are spending their time everywhere and you want to be showing up in all the places where your your customer is or consumer is. And people have to see things several times before they take an action. And you can't expect that someone's going to see something about a product one time and just go buy it right then. I mean, maybe, but totally. usually not. <laughs> no, no. It's so funny. Merchandising that content is so important. I want to say two years ago, three years ago, maybe it was consumers had to see a product seven to eight times before they were actually converted to purchase. I'm sure that number has gone up with the market being so competitive, but yeah, it's a long road. Absolutely. And even like myself as a consumer, when I see different either ads on social or I hear about things on podcasts, typically like my buying behavior is, oh, I know that I need that, but I'm in the middle of something. I'm not going to do that now. Then I see it again. I get a reminder and I'm like, oh yes, I need to do that. Then I screenshot it write it in my notes section, like, I need to buy that this weekend. And, and then sometimes I still forget about it and then get reminded another week or two later. So you really have to, you can't just expect you're going to put an ad in a podcast one time and you're going to get all these new customers. You really need to have that full funnel approach with, with partnerships and and your marketing strategy. A hundred percent. Up next, 
Kira shares best practices on how to approach a brand for a partnership. Kira, how do you recommend that a founder reach out to another brand to inquire about even partnering together? Have you found that there are certain tactics that work really well? Yeah, I think this goes, this is sort of like my general playbook for relationships. I think of it as kind of like a nucleus and then expansion, almost like Saturn's rings in a way. This is the same sort of advice that I would give for a company that is looking to raise capital or looking to target, you know, a relationship with a celebrity or an influencer. Start with your immediate circle in the sense that start with the people that you know very, very well, that trust you, that have seen your work product before and believe in your vision and vice versa. And from there, sort of expand to maybe the people that represent talent or brands that you think might be a really great fit and then expand and expand. And when you take that approach, you're starting with the important factor of building alignment and partnerships with brands that are within your immediate sphere that also trust you in that process. And then as you sort of like get notches on your belt, it becomes so much easier to expand that sphere of influence and reach people that might be a little bit further away, but in a way that they can trust. That's such great advice. What is your favorite partnership that you have uh, put together or structured over the years? They're really so special for different reasons. We're doing something right now. I I wish I could share more, but we're doing something right now with one of our portfolio companies that I think might take the cake. It's a way to be able to bring in strategic social media influencers to the brand specifically around a new innovation in support of that innovation, but in a way that benefits its sort of retail wholesale distribution strategy at its core. And I think that could be extremely interesting. One of the things that I really love to do is using talent as a means of backdoor entrance rather than just using them for consumer-facing activations. I think that is becoming a little bit more popular, but it's still a relatively new concept to many. Use your celebrity talent to build your relationships with your distributors. Use your celebrity talent to get you additional shelf space in your favorite grocers that value add actually impacts the bottom line of the business. And it's a lot easier for a celebrity or talent to do because again, it doesn't dilute that forward facing brand equity. I love that. Such a great idea. Coming up, if you're curious about angel investing, learn the first steps that you can take. Kira, I want to talk about angel investing, and you are now an active angel investor, and you share lots of tips over on Instagram and on your TikTok channel, all about fundraising. I'd love to hear, you know, how did you get into personally angel investing, and how do you determine what companies you want to invest in? Yeah. Okay. This is going to be funny. I got into angel investing like most things I'll get into, which is purely from curiosity. I think that is the best place to start 
with anything. I mean, I'll, I did the exact same strategy when I wanted to get into Web3 and blockchain technology and NFTs, which I might get shot for saying, but I still think that information is hugely valuable and relevant for the future, especially with regard to consumer brands. But back to the initial question, it's it's important to stay curious and be an early adopter in categories that pique your interest. For me, the indicator is like, if I get goosebumps or if I get a little bit jealous when I hear somebody else has done something or is exploring something, I know immediately my brain says that's a that's an avenue I need to I need to touch and explore. So that happened for me with angel investing. I was very very lucky in the sense that post these acquisitions I was in a place financially where it was an option for me. It is definitely a savings game. I do say though I think that there are a lot of people these days that will spend, you know, five to ten thousand dollars on a bag, myself included. You can take five to ten thousand dollars and you can invest it in a company that you love and want to see grow. So when I do that, I'll caveat by saying, you know, and none of this is financial advice, but I'll caveat that by saying, you know, when I invest in a company, I don't necessarily ever expect to see a return from that investment. I see it as, okay, that money's that money's gone. It gave me access to something and hopefully it'll provide a return, but it's not going to be a make or break for me. My point is you can get into angel investing with smaller checks, which I feel like a lot of people don't, don't know. You can get into angel investing through things like syndicates and SPVs. A lot of what Pearl Influential is doing, they're democratizing access to incredible deals. Again, another caveat is you do have to be an accredited investor to be able to invest in companies. And I think when I first heard that rule, my husband is actually an SEC fraud attorney on the defense side. So I know I know this very firsthand. When I first heard that rule, I thought it was incredibly frustrating and cut people out of, you know, a space that I think more people should have access to. But in retrospect, the SEC is is truly just trying to safeguard and protect investors that are investing in a, you know, highly illiquid and volatile asset class. So take that with a grain of salt. I think a lot of it is saving. I think a lot of it is just prioritizing spend. Where do you want to put the money that you do have? For a lot of people that's in clothes or home or family and, you know, you want to find that balance, but maybe that could be a little bit in a business that you want to kind of help to grow. So all that to say, my first sort of like couple of investments, I kind of see it as you got to just take a swing a little bit and it's never going to be perfect. There are always going to be mistakes. There are always going to be key learnings. But for me, I'm a huge advocate for taking money that you might invest in a course or getting your MBA and just putting it into a space that you really that you really want to learn about, taking that full swing and then learning from your mistakes and potentially capitalizing on the upside. That's such great advice. And it, it brings me back to when Courtney and I were first learning about angel investing. And this was, this is going back 2018, 2019, only a few years ago. We, I mean, we had bootstrapped our agency business, Social Fly. So we were never looking for angel investors. We didn't even know mm-hmm. anything about, you know, venture capital funds when we first started the business. Now, you know, our eyes have been open and we've learned so much over the years. But a friend of ours, Ben, he had started angel investing and doing SPVs. And we said, like, 
Can you tell us more about this? But like we reached out to him because we saw, you know, that he had been talking about things on social media. And it's like, wait, what is this? And like you said, like just having this curiosity and learning that, oh, you don't have to put $100,000 or more into a fund and be an LP. You can get started for $1,000 or $2,500, which again, don't get me wrong, is a lot of money. It's not a, you know, $5, but he even said to us, he's like, the best way to learn is to, you know, invest. And like you said, invest what you're willing to lose. And we call it Vegas money, right? Which actually makes me think about, I totally understand all the SEC requirements, but it's like, you can go to a casino and anyone can walk in there and blow a lot of money. (laughs) And there's no requirements, which is really interesting, right? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Regulation is funny. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's how Courtney and I learned and then just became really curious. And, you know, we're just so passionate about helping women founders and helping to to build these brands. And when lots of women can get together and, you know, pull a thousand dollars, twenty five hundred dollars, five thousand, ten thousand, that can be a significant amount of money to really catapult and build a brand forward. And especially when these are not just influencers, but I say everyone is influential, right? Whether you have 300 followers on Instagram or 300,000 or 3 million followers, those 300 followers, if you are connected to them and those are your friends and people who trust you and go to you for advice, like everyone is really an influencer. Oh, absolutely. And everybody has unique expertise and perspectives that are valuable to a company in a different way. It's sort of like what I would do in retrospect before I started angel investing or just investing in general. And I'll get into that a little bit too, is I would start by reflecting on what my value add looks like first and foremost. And I think I got lucky in the sense that I took some advisory positions before I started putting my own money into companies where I got equity in exchange for sweat. And that allowed me to kind of test and learn what that value really was. But once you understand your unique value, putting money into a business no longer feels like you're just giving money to a founder because you believe in the business. You're almost using it to open a door to be able to have a say in their growth and support their growth. And I think that's what's even more exciting to me. Going back to my earlier point too, it's it's interesting how quickly you learn something and you want to learn something else. So last year I did a couple of angel investments, some of my favorite companies. This year I was planning on doing, you know, the same sort of cadence, three to four angel investments per year was the thought process that I had. But this year I I developed a taste for fund investing and I wanted to learn what it was like to be on the LP side. So I actually invested in RX3 and invested in another fund. And I think that that's an indication of like when something prickles your arm hairs or interests you, you need to go after it and kind of like learn it and conquer it. And that'll sort of round out what your understanding is of the space. Absolutely. Such great advice. Do you want to share any of the brands that you've personally invested in? Oh my gosh, of course. I think they're all actually listed on LinkedIn. So please go stock. Glow Nuts was my first investment. They're a better for you sort of like donut company. They are delicious. In a similar vein, I invested in a company called Behave, which is a better for you candy company. I love brands, if you can't tell, that sort of like are perfect platforms for partnerships. I think that's sort of like, like I mentioned, the forefront of marketing. And then recently I invested in a company called Doe, which I am obsessed with. 
You guys are very familiar, I'm sure, with Sabina and Doe. Yes, and she's been on the podcast. So if you're when you're listening right now, you can once you finish this episode, go back and listen to Sabina's episode and hear all about her story. She is one of those founders that is just enigmatic, and I would follow to the ends of the earth. She is incredible, and the product is amazing. She actually just launched these. I'm going to date the episode. I'm so sorry. She just launched these donuts, these little donut holes that are chocolate, and I. I'm so excited to try them. So I just... I'm excited to try them too. And I invested as well. Did you run the SPV? Was it through your SPV? No, no. I've actually... I've never run an SPV. My girlfriends do. I think they're so good at it. But no, I've never... and, And it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm a little picky with how I invest, I suppose. I like to invest direct. I usually don't invest through an SPV, although I think it's an incredible tool. The only reason that I do that is because I like to test myself to know that I have that strong real relationship with the founder where if I texted them and I said, hey, I think this could be a really interesting idea that they would respond and be like, yes or no, you're crazy. So I think just having that litmus test, no matter how you're investing is important. So important. I love that. Do you accept pitches from founders who are looking for investment? I do. I need to build more of a process for it. Obviously for RX3, that is part of my job. We have a very specific sort of mandate in terms of the companies that we look for. So those details are are on that site. I do take calls for RX3, of course. And then personally, yes, of course, there's I like to see everything. I like to learn about everything. Unfortunately, I'm not able to take every call, but the ones that I can that I find super, super intriguing, yes, absolutely. I like to do that. Any recommendations you can share for founders that are currently out there raising capital? What should they be thinking about doing in their pitch process? Best ways to reach out to investors in general or you? Share all the good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. The first tip I would share is use your network. A warm intro, it is what it is, will always help. The second is do your research. And I think the reason why I've I've started to see more content around investors ghosting brands, and I think there's a growing frustration on the founder side with investors that are dipping out of processes. And on the investor side, I know there's a growing frustration with sort of brands reaching out that haven't necessarily done research on the mandate of the firm or the parameters in which they can invest. So I'd say for both parties, I think it makes it easier when you go into a conversation with a very realistic goal and understanding of what they need to do in order to post the returns that their LPs are, you know, relying on or hoping for. And on the flip side, understanding, you know, as a founder, what are you raising that capital for? How is it going to scale and move the business forward in a meaningful way? Recently, I know obviously with the market as it is, this is happening more and more. I'm hoping that sort of the pendulum will swing back to center soon, but raising capital for things like inventory, things that are sort of like short-term solves, it's possible, but it's not necessarily, in my opinion, like the best use of valuable equity. Uh, So just being thoughtful about what you're raising for, who you're raising it from, and presenting it as an opportunity versus an ask is usually like, those are the first parameters of feedback that I would give to a founder looking to raise right now. I love that. And I share that too. Always positioning it as an opportunity. Like you're giving these investors the opportunity to invest in your business. Like they wouldn't have this otherwise. And having that mentality and mindset is so important. It absolutely is. I mean, it's like any relationship. If you go into it with sort of 
that feeling of desperation, it's going to be palpable. But if you go mm-hmm. into it knowing your worth and the value that you bring to the table, then that too is palpable. And I think it makes founders a little bit more magnetic. Absolutely. Kara, what is the craziest thing that has ever happened to you in business? Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. That is a great question. Oh, I don't even know if I can share those stories. The craziest thing that has happened to me in business. You know, honestly, this is a bit of a lame answer and I apologize to everybody listening, but the craziest thing that's happened to me is my career thus far. Like if you really think about anybody's career, when you look back at decades, I think that I think a lot about accomplishments, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, and what an accomplishment means to me or what maybe my best accomplishment has been. And I ruminate on that. And to be honest, I, I don't think of any of those like successes as accomplishments necessarily. It's more about every single day, knowing that I've had the consistency to get up and say, I'm going to be the best at whatever it is I do today. And then going to bed, knowing that I did that and then doing the same thing the next day. Mm-hmm. That consistency and when it culminates into some semblance of a career, you know, I'm still very early in what I hope will be a very long career. That to me is what is the craziest. The way that life sort of directs you and redirects you through, you know, successes and failures. It's honestly kind of wild. The fact that a girl who did pre-law in college wound up in PR as, you know, an early employee at a very boutique small agency and then ultimately wound up in private equity running partnerships and investing in companies that she loves like it sounds like a Cinderella story it's amazing and such a testament to what you shared just getting up and doing the hard work every single day and not giving up and building real meaningful relationships because as you said, it's like one thing can lead to the next. And when you stay consistent and you have that positive mindset and an attitude and you just keep going, there's so many opportunities and possibilities that can be right in front of you if you just remain open to them and you see what that next step is. Yeah. And I I don't want to take credit for this because I actually, my therapist told me this two days ago. So credit to her, but I love what she said. She reminded me that my role here on earth is to serve. As a human, it is my job to serve. It is my job to bring value. It is my job to share my expertise, to provide help, to be a good friend. So she mentioned when, whenever I'm in a conversation or I'm doing something like this, it's so important to not come at it from an ego perspective and instead go into it by saying, what value can I give from this conversation in particular or this action? And I think too, when you're looking to build a career, it can be really easy to get caught up in what's going to get me to the next ladder. I'm guilty of that. But I loved that mentality of if you look at it from what value you can provide, then that will just naturally sort of occur in the way that it's meant to. I so agree with that. And 
this like natural mentality and mindset I feel like I've had too my whole life. I've always just wanted to help others and share and, you know, give back and help. And Courtney and I, when we first started Social Fly, we had joined a networking organization. And in that networking organization, the whole philosophy of it was giver's gain. So when you give and you're doing things you like naturally want to be doing to help others, it all ends up coming back and it it helps you, it helps others. You build your network, you build your community, you help others build their network and their business. And I say this all the time, like there is, there's enough business to go around for everyone. There's enough opportunities for everyone. You just have to be willing to, you know, put yourself out there and, and help others and share and give back. And there can be, you know, winning opportunities for everyone. I truly believe that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every person is magic in their own unique way. So harnessing that and not getting, you know, distracted by other people's magic is critical too. Absolutely. Well, Kara, I know we could chat for hours and hours and hours right now. I have one final question for you. And then we should totally, uh, we should do a partnerships uh, Instagram live one day and we can take everyone's questions live because I know that, you know, so many of the women in our entrepreneurial community have lots of questions on the best way to structure brand partnerships and deals. And I loved how you shared about some of the best partnerships were really just in kind. So finding those those right right brands to, to really align with. So yeah, let's let's continue the conversation over there. But last question for you today, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Being an entrepreneurista means being a self-starter. I don't want that to sound as cheesy as it came out, but it really does. I mean, it's interesting. I'm not an entrepreneur. You know, I haven't started my own business. I have had the pleasure of helping to build other people's businesses that I believe in wholeheartedly. But I think working as an entrepreneur, even if it isn't on an entrepreneurial endeavor, can still mean being an entrepreneur. So whether you are, you know, a junior account executive at an agency like I was once, or you run your own department at a larger company, you're still an entrepreneur in the sense that you're building something that didn't exist prior. And I think, yeah, it comes back to just being a self-starter at any stage of your career. Absolutely. I love that. And actually, we we have a word for that too, an intrapreneurista working at like an entrepreneur within an organization that exists. So Exactly, exactly what you shared. Kara, where can everyone find you, follow you of those that are interested in reaching out to you? What's the best way for them to to do so? Yeah, yeah. My Instagram is Kira McKenzie. I think that's probably just the easiest way. My TikTok is Kira McKenzie, just the Z, and the same with Twitter. So there. And then my email is in my bio. Amazing. Well, we will be linking out to all of your links and handles in the show notes below. So if you want to connect with Kara, head over to the show notes right now. And Kara, thank you again for spending the afternoon with me. It was so good to see you as always. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there.
Wishing you a productive week ahead. Bye.